Well, please remain standing and take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 20. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to begin with the last verse of chapter 19 and read through verse 16 of chapter 20. And before I do so, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. How gracious, Father, we humbly come again in Christ's sweet name for instruction. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from our ignorance Lord, teach us the things that we don't know. Help us, to, help us to see, Lord, your greatness, your goodness, Lord, your generosity. Help us, O oh Lord, be appreciative for the saving grace that we have in Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, not to be, Lord, uh, anxious are envious, Lord, in this world with what we do not have. Help us, Lord, be to be content. Use this word this morning to not only cleanse our hearts, but, Lord, to fill us with a new strength. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Establish the hope that we have in Christ and lead us, O oh Lord, in righteous paths for your namesake. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Beginning at verse 30 of chapter 19, beloved, hear the word of the living God. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, Will you go into the vineyard too? And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give this to the last man the same as you. And it's not lawful for me, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious 
because I am generous. So the last shall be first and the first last. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And beloved, as we continue to study the parables, all of the previous parables, including this one, all relate to the kingdom of God in this world. The everyday things, those things that we put our hands to each and every day, this parable was taught by Christ to his disciples to answer a very interesting, if not a disappointing question to Christ. There were times when the apostles seemed to uh, rise to the occasion and give good and, and biblical answers to the questions that Jesus posed them and, and other times like this one and even like the one we looked at in Matthew 18 uh, they look to be disappointing. We see the struggle that the disciples had in truly understanding the kingdom of God and understanding the work of Jesus Christ in particular, how a sovereign God was bringing salvation to the earth all according to his sovereign free will. This parable seeks to bring to bear, if you will, God's generosity in a way that would be hard to forget. Very hard to, do, very hard to forget once you hear the story. And that's the purpose of it. That's the intent of it. It's to drive home in the heart and mind of these disciples and ours that our God is a generous God. And it doesn't matter if we think so or not. Many years ago, I chose this text for a funeral. I was asked by a member family of my church if I would preach um, a f the funeral of one of their deceased family members. And there was some, but it, what was, I guess, challenging in this opportunity that I had to preach the gospel was that the person had not spent their lives serving Christ. They weren't Christians. In fact, they had just made a profession of faith right before they passed away. So there was nothing to look back upon. There was no testimony that could be honored. There was nothing that I could draw anyone's attention to to demonstrate God's grace in their lives, in the history of their lives with their family. This person was a, a very difficult person who had a very hard time and the family was struggling. 
um, with this person. And there was a lot of tension in the home. There was a lot of tension among all the family members with this person. But in the end, this person didn't make a profession of faith. And I really, uh, when asked to preach the funeral, was uh, wanted to honor uh, the family and the members of my church, wanted to honor them and, and do it, but I also wanted to be faithful. I wanted to be faithful to the Lord. I wanted to be faithful to the gospel of Christ. Uh, I didn't want to preach necessarily, make something more glamorous than it was, uh, like so many funerals where everybody goes to heaven kind of thing, but I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to be tangible. I wanted it to be a blessing to God. And so I chose this text. And I chose this text because the one thing that I could focus on was not necessarily the life of that person that made a late profession of faith, but upon the generosity of God. And that God is free. He is free to save some at an early age. And they spend all of their lives serving him and laboring and working in his vineyard, bearing the scorching heat of the day. And there are others like the thief on the cross who spend their lives in squander and sin. But the taste saving grace at the very end of life. I wanted to highlight the generosity of God. I wanted to focus on him and I wanted the family who were really struggling with this person's death and the, the past to hear it and to rest in it and to answer those questions in their hearts and their minds and, and, and to just address the turmoil that they seem to be experiencing and that God would cover it in grace and that God would focus their attention upon him and, 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 and rejoice that this person didn't make a profession of faith. Well, beloved, this text has that kind of practical application. It's interesting that this text is, if you will, encapsulated by verse 30 of chapter 19 and verse 16, where Jesus seems to be using a commonly understood or known proverb of his day by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And of course, this comes in context to Peter's uh, dramatic statement found in verse 27. If you look there with me, notice after, after Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, and the word tells us that the rich young ruler went away sad, and then Jesus says it's very difficult not impossible, but difficult, it's hard, if you will, for a rich person to enter into the kingdom because of all of their possessions. And Peter seems to take this to heart. And then in verse 27, notice what Peter says. It's, behold, 
we have left everything and followed you. What then will be there for us? Now, there's a little bit of drama in Peter's words. Behold, Lord. I mean, he's making a big deal about this in the original language. Peter seems to be demanding from Christ this audience and answer to this question that Peter has. What about us? What will come of us? We have followed you in all around these cities. We have, we have been mocked. We have been ridiculed. We have suffered some hunger. We've had to pray and, and, and watch you bring food down from heaven. I mean, what about us? And Jesus said to them in verse 28, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne. You also will sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone, and everyone, emphasis there, who has left houses and brothers or sisters and father or mother, children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now the the focus is the eternal life part. Now Jesus gives the proverb The first will be last, the last first. When you think about the proverb, what is it actually teaching? Well, equity. The first is last. The last is first. If the first goes to be last, then the last goes to be first. It's simple. It's plain. It's right there. There's this equity when it comes to the salvation there are, there's no hierarchy when it comes to the administration of salvation. There's no one who is born into this world deserving to be saved. It all flows out of the sovereign mercy and grace of Almighty God. Even the rich young ruler could not buy his way into heaven. He couldn't work his way into heaven. He couldn't obey his own way into heaven. It all flows from God's sovereign mercy. That's the purpose of the text, though. You're already seeing it. We're already hearing it, even with our ears. It's the generosity of God. But that generosity flows out of God's sovereign will. It flows from God's sovereign will. What do we mean by that? Why is that important? Well, God's sovereign will is is his freedom. It's his freedom to act as he pleases all according to his nature. All that God is, God acts freely in accordance with his nature. And there's nothing outside of God that that moves God, if you will, manipulates God or causes God to act in any other way. He's not like we are. That we can make decisions and be moved by impulses that are outside of us. God's not like that. God's choices and his generosity, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his grace, his salvation, all flows from his sovereign will and freedom to save 
whom he pleases. And none deserving to save. And this is what the parable is going to teach us. God is not obligated by the family name of anyone to save them, by the nationality of anyone to save them, by the color of anyone to save them, by any, any other standard to save them. There's nothing in this life that can be bartered with or, or, or demonstrated or shown to God that God would be moved to go, yeah, okay, you're in, I am going to save you because of X, Y, Z. It doesn't work that way. God cannot be manipulated in that fashion. So that's the context. This is the purpose that Jesus begins now to answer this question, driving the point home that they miss it. They don't understand it. That salvation is flows from the generosity of God, not out of his obligation. Now let's look at the parable and then we're going to make some applications or pull out some duties to this doctrine that God is free to administer his salvation as he sees fit. Now notice verse 1 of chapter 20. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he agreed with the laborers for a denarius for a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Let me stop there and just make uh, some points here. Now, first of all, it is without a doubt that we believe the landowner is God. He's the owner. He's the sovereign. He's the one who owns the vineyard, the vineyard being this world that we live in. And notice in the parable, of course, it's just the extraction of this general truth of God's sovereign generosity as he sees fit to apply salvation according to his will. That's the meat of the parable. We're not going to make everything mean something because then we'll get ourselves in trouble that way. But just to point out a few things. Now, first of all, he goes out and he hires these day laborers. Now, we are the day laborers, the people. Now, a day laborer, it's important to note that a day laborer was sort of the bottom of the labor pool. I'm sorry, nothing glamorous about this. We're at the bottom of the labor pool. Household servants were a step up from these day laborers. Now, the reason a household servant was a step up from the day laborer because a household servant knew that that day they had clothing, they had shelter, and they were going to have a meal. The day laborers did not know that. That's why they found themselves in the market. They wanted to secure for themselves some type of employment so that they could receive enough money that day to provide for themselves and their families. So that's number one. These are day laborers. They, I guess, let me, let me mention this part. They could be easily manipulated 
day laborers could be taken advantage of. They were, could be easily, it could be easy to abuse a day laborer. And based upon if they had had employment the day before, the day before that, or the day before that, and, and, and then find themselves, they could be tasked to do any number of things for a very low wage. But that's not the landowner here. The landowner actually, according to biblical standards and according to the monetary value of the day, is giving them a legitimate wage, which was far above than what a day laborer would commonly receive, a denarii or denarii. And this was biblical are biblical in the sense that he's not taking advantage of them. He's actually paying them a higher wage than they would commonly see in this line of work. And in keeping with the biblical principles of Leviticus, they would be paid at the end of the day. In order for them to be able to go to the market, the end of the day would be six o'clock. Go to the market to buy food, and to maybe even secure for themselves a place to sleep that night. It depends if that's what they needed. So he goes out, he hires them. He's, he's free to enter into a contract with these laborers. No one else is involved. The government hasn't stepped in. He is free to contract with the landowner uh, the, what he will work for. The landowner contracts with him. They come to an agreement and the laborers go out into the vineyard. Now, because this is typically right before the rainy season, it's important that these grapes in the vineyard get harvested quickly because when the fall rains come, it destroys the crop. And so it's imperative that that as many hands that can be hired to labor in the vineyard to pick these grapes for wine happen so that this crop can be preserved and of course there can be uh, money made upon the crop for the landowner. And notice what he does in verse three and following. He went out the third hour of the nine o'clock and he saw others standing idle in the market. And he said to, and, and to those, he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. It could be that they, they understood this man to be a generous man. There's no, there's nothing in the story that Christ uses where there's any type of debate, bartering, or a contract. They, they go, maybe because they wanted to secure for themselves employment. It's nine o'clock. The chances may are decreasing, right, of getting a day's wage, if you will. And so they go. There's nothing that is stated in the parable, the story itself. They go out and they begin working. And again, he went about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, the 11th hour being five o'clock. The end of the day is at six o'clock. And he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now they go. He hires laborers up until the last hour of the day. The contractor, the landowner, the vineyard um, uh, the owner of the vineyard is free to hire as many people as he wants and certainly pay them whatever they negotiate. 
Now, let's look at verse 8 and following, and this is where he begins to drive the point home of the proverb, the first shall be last and the last first. Notice he says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last group first. Now, this is intentional in the story. It's important that Christ in the story points out that those who were hired first wait to receive their contracted denarii while they witness what all the others were paid. That's an important feature of the story. This is what Jesus is going to use to drive to into the heart of Peter and the disciples, this, this doctrine that God is generous and that that generosity is sovereignly administered as he sees fit. Look at what he says. He says, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more but each of them also received a denarius. Now stop. It's obvious that Jesus used this story to illustrate the excitement or the imagination of the one's first hire. That is, they're watching these laborers who have not worked much at all receive what they had contracted with the landowner to receive. And you can imagine, they thought, wow, this is going to be a great day. And they allowed their imaginations to really get away from them, right? And so, verse 11, it says, when they received it, or verse 10, when those hired first came and they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius, and when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. And he answered and said to one of them, now notice the statement, friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Now, this is an interesting statement Jesus uses because it's not, in English, it, it, it insinuates that this is like a friendly reply to this complaint. But th th it, it's almost like saying, hey, bud, hey, bud, listen, have I done you wrong? So friend is a little, can be a little misleading there, but it's like, hey, friend, or it's really given in a very terse way, used that way. In verse 14, he tells him, he says, take what is yours and go. Here's the thing, but I wish to give to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Now, beloved, Jesus drives home the point that am I not free to give salvation to all whom my Father has called and elected? 
even in the rich young ruler situation, Jesus didn't reject the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler rejected him. Why? Because he rejected the terms of the gospel. What were the terms of the gospel in this account with the rich young ruler? Sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. Jesus exposing the idolatry of his heart. Jesus trying to draw out from this rich, young, privileged ruler that there was sin still occupying his heart that he was unwilling to address, unwilling to deal with, unwilling to crucify. And he loved that sin more than he loved the thought and the mission and the work of eternal life. And he rejects it. I'm not willing to give these sins up. And I'm not willing to come and follow you. And so the Bible tells us that the rich young ruler went away sad. Beloved, we must come to understand that when we take our eyes off of the Lord... And when we put them on the circumstances around us, we're going to get in trouble. When you begin evaluating your circumstances, your life, as compared to the life of those around you, then you're going to begin to question the goodness and the generosity of God. Why, why do I have to bear the heat of the day, and they do not. And that's going to lead us to our applications this morning. And that to drive home this point that our God is generous. I mean, that's, that's what each and every one of us who have come to Christ, whether it was at five years old or 50 years old, beloved, each of us can declare that our God is generous. Because we are all undeserving recipients of his saving grace. God was not obligated to save anyone. He told our first father and mother, the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die and all of your posterity with you. And they ate anyway. And they died. And we died in them. And we come into this life, this world, beloved, broken we come into this world sinful. We don't, we, we, we don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we come into this world sinners. And God was not obligated to come down and find Adam and Eve and save them. He was not obligated. He was just, notice what he said in the text. Is it wrong for me to do with what I please with what's mine? Don't we see here the right to property? 
And we enjoy our own stuff, right? I mean, imagine the world that we could live easily in with all of the, the, the mass rebellion taking place. I mean, somebody just walk into your house and starts going through your refrigerator and you're like, hey, what are you doing? I'm just seeing if you got anything to eat. I'm hungry. Well, we probably shoot them. You know, listen, why is it wrong to do that? Because we do believe in property rights. Where do we get that? Where do we get this idea of property rights? From the Lord. But because we have robbed the Lord of his own sovereignty, how dare him tell me what to do? And the very argument that Paul uses in Romans 9, how dare you? Who are you to talk back to God? How can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? And yet, because we have robbed God of that glory, and that's what it is. It's, glory. it's a glory that only he has, this, this total sovereignty. And because we have robbed God of that sovereignty, what do we see eroding around us today and even our own culture? Our own sovereignty rights. Those own, they're limited, but our own property rights. I mean, if God can't have that glory, neither can we. And that's why there is the, the, the valid statement, until this nation turns to God, there can be no reformation, there can be no healing, there can be no true progress. We have to establish the one who is first sovereign, who does what he pleases. And he does that even in the salvation of men and women. Let's go through some of these duties that the parable sets forth that we might be helped by. The first duty that I want to impress upon us all this morning is that when we are called by the gospel, when we are called to go labor in the Lord's vineyard, we should heed the call. When we hear the gospel preached, beloved, whether you like the gospel or not, whether you like the idea that you're, a, whether you don't like the idea that being called a sinner or not is irrelevant to the reality that that's the case, that that's the biblical reality. That's the situation we find ourselves in, that we are broken people outside of Christ and only Christ can be that foundation and that that fulfilling and strength that comes to our lives that secures for us not only eternal life, but then that progression of walking as the image bearers of God being sanctified by the word of God and the truth and growing in that. When we hear the gospel preach, we have a moral obligation to receive Christ, to repent of our sins and to put our faith and trust in him. And why do you put your faith and trust in Christ? Well, because he's the sin bearer. He's the one who has come and offered up a perfect life in our place. Because that's what is required for everlasting life. What's required? A perfect life. 
We don't have it. No one does. Everyone born into this world outside of Jesus is a sinner and incapable of offering up a perfect sacrifice to God, which is a perfect life. And so therefore, we come, the gospel impresses upon us that we are broken and sinful and we need to confess our sins. We need to put our faith and trust in Christ so that when we stand before God on that day, we say, no, my only claim to everlasting life is the blood of Christ. It's the life of Christ. And I put my faith and trust that what Christ has done is acceptable in the Father's sight. And I trust that. And I demonstrate that this conversion is true and real by walking in his ways. Walking according to his word. Trusting him for all my daily needs. And that can be very difficult for some of us. Some of us have more than others. Some of us have very little at all, and it can be very difficult. I mean, it's easy for someone who has so much to tell others, well, learn to, to do without, trust the Lord. But yet, nevertheless, beloved, that, that we all find ourselves in need of something, right? I mean, I might not need groceries, but I may need that grace in my marriage with my son, with my daughter. I, I may need this grace to help me with a difficult work situation, a trial. We are all, beloved, desperately in need of something that only can be had spiritually. We must, beloved, heed the call to go work in the vineyard. And I know in our day and time, it's a very difficult thing to work in the vineyard. I mean, it's dangerous. It's not popular. It's not, you're not gonna get a lot of pats on the back for being a Christian for actually walking after the ways of the Lord, actually, you know, believing the Bible, you're, you're not going to get the accolades that maybe your great-grandfather and mother got years ago when it was very common for people to be in church on Sunday, when it was very common for people to, to have this set of standards and morals that come from the Scriptures. It was very common to profess faith in Christ. It was very common for people to be religious, and yet, look where we are today. It's a very hard and difficult time. In some countries, it's even way worse than what we're experiencing. I mean, it's a life or death struggle. And yet, they are still obligated to enter into the vineyard when they hear the gospel. Secondly, not only do we need to heed the call to come and work in the vineyard, we must be careful of envy as we do so. Notice in the parable toward the end of it, um, 
verse 15, he says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own or is your eye envious or your translation may say wicked because I am generous. Beloved, when we take our eyes off of the Lord, when we put them on others, that seem to have a better disposition, who seems to have a better place in this world, who seems to have the better family in this world, and all of the things that we may long for for ourselves, which are not wrong in and of themselves, but yet what happens is then we begin to complain. Why is it so hard today? Why do I go to church? Very few show up. Why do I want to be a Christian? It's not popular at all. It's not going to win me friends. Why is my health deteriorating? I do the most in church. Why did I lose my job when I seemed to be the biggest giver in the church? I mean, all of these, and you know what? That's a complaint. We're grumbling. We're grumbling because what we're, what we're confessing in our own evil hearts is, is God not sovereign to do as he pleases with what is his? If he wishes to raise one brother up and to bless them extremely beyond measure, is it not God's right to do so? Is it not? <laughs> None of us came into this world accidentally we are all here at the right time in the right place at the right moment facing the right battles facing the right challenges the question is beloved will we do so with an eye toward God's generosity and sovereignty I'm just glad I'm just glad that I have been called to the vineyard I could be like the rich young ruler. You could too. Go away sad. Unwilling to actually give up that which is so temporal for that which is gloriously eternal, everlasting life. What was it how did they know? I mean, what does Jesus point out in this idea of, dim, of, of revealing their envy? They're complaining. Their complaining was the fruit of an envious heart. That's what Jesus is exposing with his disciples, is he not? Why are you grumbling? Why? Because you're envious. And we must be on the lookout for envy in our own lives. And we can't look to our brothers and our sisters as the standard of the Christian life. We must look to Christ. We must look to the Christ of the word, or, or we might even say Christ of the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We must look to the scriptures as our standard. We must conform to God's holy word. Secondly, we must, or thirdly, we must watch out for those ideologies, if you will, that distorts God's sovereign freedom to do as he pleases with what's his. And I've already mentioned one. You might say the rights to property 
the rights to free contract, the ideology that, that attacks all of that today is that of Marxism, right? The idea that um, there is no such thing as property rights. You'll own nothing and be happy. Well, again, that's not what God says. We, those, those, listen, that is an irreligious, unbelieving ideology that hates God. It hates true religion and its design is to attack God's sovereignty. There is no question that this is part of Marxism, particularly attacking those planks that have been held to for generations that flow right out of Scripture, such as property rights. I mean, when we talk about property rights, beloved, I'm not, I don't want you to just think about your house or your car. I want you to think about your person. That's your first property, your mind, your intellect, your body. Look how that's being violated today. Look how things are being forced upon you that you must believe these things, the indoctrination that's happening. That's, that, that's, not, that's not biblical, that's sinful. And we as Christians should fight such stuff, such activity. We should be against it. We should speak against it. So we must, beloved, be aware and we must understand that there are these things, right, there are these things that ultimately end up, they attack the Lord's own sovereign will and choice. Another one, another one. It's easy to focus on what you don't have or don't get versus what you have and what you've been given. It's easy to focus on what you don't have and what you can't get versus what you already have and what you can have. And that was the problem with these first hires, if you will. They did not focus on the generosity of the denarii. It was a generous wage. It was above generous they were at the bottom of the labor pool and they were given a day's wage that would have been equitable for any hire, any worker up the ladder. And yet, what did they focus on? They didn't focus on God's generosity and the sovereign will that he had to give to them what he wanted. No, they focused on what they didn't get. And that's a big mistake. That kind of thinking will lead to your own personal demise, bitterness, anger. It ruins marriages. When, when married couples focus on what they're not getting versus what they have and what they can cultivate. Obviously, the root being that envy, that selfishness, if you will. 
And we must be on the guard. We must, we have a duty based upon the teaching of the parable, right? That there's this, this equity and God is sovereign in this. And we ought to be thankful and humble that we even have a place in the vineyard. Brother, listen to me. You're sitting here this morning hearing the gospel preached. A decent building. Bible's in your laps. I'm sure there's lunch prepared afterwards. What do you lack? The truth, I mean, you could be in a family. You could be, you, you could have no family. Parents on drugs. People are so broken in this life, in this world, in this country. Children are being given away for drugs. That's brokenness. They're being given away. It was a documentary on TV. I had to quit watching it. It was just too dark or too real about the drug culture in America and its darkness. And they would bring these these drug dealers in and black out their faces and they would have this conversation. And the things that they confessed of what they see day in and day out. I had to quit watching. I was too broke. I I, I couldn't stop. I literally would, I'd just start weeping. To imagine such darkness. Beloved, do you have the opportunity to labor in the vineyard by God's grace? Take advantage of it. Be thankful. Be humble. Declare God's generosity to you no matter what. Don't focus on what you don't have because I'm telling you there are others that would love to be in any of our situations. Many others. And that's not to say that we can sit back and just pat ourselves on the back, right? This is just stating the facts. There's work to be done. There's a gospel to be preached. There's people to be saved. We've got to labor in our vineyard, amen? We've got to put our hands to the gospel plow and not look back. We've got to tell people about Christ. We have got to learn, beloved, to rejoice in the generosity of God toward notorious sinners like ourselves. I'm on one more application, but before I do, you know, back when Facebook used to be fun, you know, where there was, there could be a lot of good free speech debate. I mean, this is like, I don't know, 
15 years ago when I was on Facebook. <laughs> been quite a while. Um, but it used to be fun. But I remember, I don't know, this is probably early 2000s actually. Um, someone bringing up this idea that what would you do if you got to heaven and Hitler was there? <laughs> and it just caused this whirlwind of debate. Now, based upon this parable, what do you think the answer ought to be? Well, he don't deserve it. Really? Are we now going to determine who God can save and can't save? I mean, is that the role we want to take? Are we going to start complaining to God about who he saves and not saves? I mean, it's a ridiculous debate, honestly. But nevertheless, it revealed quite a bit. And I thought, you know, I don't know if this is the right answer, but I'm going to give you my answer. I'm just glad I'm going to heaven. And God can save who he pleases. I'm not going to get into the minutia of who deserves it and who don't. Because I know I don't. That's what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach no one's deserving. But it's interesting how we will launch into and these kinds of discussions and truly manifest what? An envious heart. How dare that person be saved. Last, last duty and application. And this is something that I want to leave you thinking about along with the rest of them, but even more so this one throughout the day. Learn contentment in your own life. Can you do that? Well, only by God's help and by God's grace. Learn contentment with your age, your health. That's not to say that you don't need to improve it. If you can, some can't. That's not to say you shouldn't improve your income or anything like that. But what I'm saying is, beloved, learn that this is who you are before the Lord. And I'm not going to chase these dreams i'm not going to i'm not going to envy my brothers and sisters i'm going to rejoice with them that they have what looks to be all of these blessings i'm going to learn to praise god for them and what he's doing with them and i'm going to learn contentment lord give me contentment in the day that we live even as a pastor contentment as a congregation, contentment. This is where God has you. This is where God has us. This is where the city, this is the, this is the outcome. This is the political scheme and, and, and situation. These are the things we face. These are the challenges. These are the, the, on, uh, the assaults, if you will, that we have to face. But yet we must learn to be content. That God doesn't make mistakes. He's infinitely wise in all that he does. 
And God has you exactly where he wants you so that he may manifest in your life a generosity, oh, a love and a generosity for him that you see in him that, is, that staggers everybody around you. Because there will be people to tell you, oh, look, you, you ought to be complaining. I can't believe that you would put up with this. How dare all of these people don't give you everything you deserve? You know what I got? I have eternal life. That's first and foremost. We're going to work on everything. I got eternal life. I have eternal life. It's undeserving. I have it. And I'm going to work in this vineyard. And if I have to, if I'm not that last hour person, I'm going to bear the scorch and the, the heat of the day. If that's God's will, then that's what's good for me but I will be content with what God is doing in my life. Amen? Let's pray. And Father, thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to realign our thinking, our focus, our heart, to direct it to you. Lord, you are generous. You are sovereignly generous. You could have done nothing. You could have left us in our sin. You could have left us under the sentence of judgment from the very beginning, and yet you did not. You came down and you sought after Adam and Eve, and you sought to save a people for your own namesake, and you sought to fill them with your spirit, Lord, and make them, Lord, your family to take us out of the family of Satan and darkness and put us into your family. And Lord, teach us to praise your name. Teach us, Lord, to exclaim your generosity. Teach us, O oh Lord, to honor your own sovereignty. Teach us to praise you for the blessings of others and not be envious. Help us to rejoice and help us, O oh God, walk in the, the, a with a content spirit. Lord, give us a, a contentment that is visible and is manifested, Lord, in how we live every day of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.